I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If you see bright green leaves coming up in the middle of winter and the white flower gradually easing itself up above the foliage and then opening into a bell-like flower, what do you think that would be? Any guesses? A shy and retiring sort of plant. It only comes out briefly when there's nothing else to, to overshadow it and it can have the stage to itself. I'm Guy Barter and my favourite plant at this time of year, and indeed most of the year, is the common snowdrop. We will be returning to Guy and his snowdrops later in the show. And while Guy is talking about a common type, a species snowdrop called Galanthus nivalis, there are many, many different varieties. The foliage might be a little different, or the flower colour or the shape. And later in the show, we'll hear from esteemed plant breeder Peter Moore, who'll be explaining some of the tricks he uses to create brand new blooms. Plus, get your notepads out. We're writing a gardening to-do list and we're getting some inspiration from a Victorian grower who challenged the way that British people thought about their outside spaces. Lots to come in this week's episode of Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. So it's been a busy time for me in the garden. I've been pruning wisteria at my parents' house, so I've been getting rid of all the long, whippy stuff and kind of concentrating on that lovely kind of twiggy growth with little short, stubby stems, which is what gives you the flowers. I've been sowing tomatoes and chilies, which is just such a lovely thing to do, even when it's really, really cold and horrible outside. You sow them in a warm, warm environment of a heated propagator or a warm windowsill. And one thing that I've decided to do this year, because the storms blew the netting off my cabbages and kale and chard, the pigeons descended on them and I've just got tattered little stumps. So what I'm going to do is I'm sowing microgreens. So you can even grow kale and chard as microgreens in small seed trays filled with compost on a bright windowsill. And you can get crops within a couple of weeks. And it's a really nice way to just kind of fast forward your harvest and get something really healthy. Sunflower seeds, pea shoots, radishes as well, they work really well. And it's, like I say, it's a really good way to just get some healthy, fresh greens really quickly. And of course, between all that hard work, I have been taking time to admire the snowdrops. Let's head back to join my fellow podcast host, Guy Barter, to hear more about why he loves this iconic winter plant. I've always loved snowdrops. When I was a child, I lived in the countryside, in the chalk downs of Wiltshire and Dorset, and the snowdrops there grow amazingly. They love a chalky soil. So we always had great masses of snowdrops in our Victorian garden. And my sister and I used to catch the mice when the corn was being cleared and uh, put them in a cage and feed them on snowdrop berries. Well, the mice didn't really thrive on snowdrop berries and soon escaped. 
but it was a lot of fun at the time. For those of you who don't know what a snowdrop is, and there must be a few people who are not aware, it's a little tiny bulb that grows to about six inches, producing uh, white pendant flowers, usually flowers in January. When I was a child, before climate change set in, it flowered in February, but now it's January. And it comes up at a time of year when there's nothing else, and is a gloriously uplifting sort of thing, and it's so easy to grow. It'll grow in any soil, except the really acid or wet ones. It doesn't need sun, although it'll appreciate a bit of sun. It'll grow in the shade. And the way to start a snowdrop plantation is to buy them in the green. You can find them in markets, garden centres, or order them online. And they come with green leaves, living roots, and you pop them in. And before you know it, you've got little clumps all over the place. It's a plant that actually comes from the Balkans and Georgia and round the Black Sea. Now, a lot of people get really worked up about snowdrops and they collect all sorts of rather charming flower forms. I'm afraid my love of the snowdrop doesn't go quite that far. I mean, some forms have been known to sell for hundreds of pounds, but I'm perfectly happy with lots of the ordinary common or garden snowdrops, although I do have a soft spot for the double ones. A lot of people think the double ones are, well, they're not quite as nice as the singles, but um, I like them. I've got both in my garden. Divide them as I do when they finish flowering. I can never have enough, so I'm going to order another couple of hundred this year and carry on filling up the garden. In my garden, the snowdrops grow in the wintry areas. And because snowdrops are so important, I don't grow them with things that might overpower them. I mix them in with bulbs like grape hyacinths. And I've got some things called epimediums. And epimediums are a lovely evergreen ground cover plant that's totally resistant to slugs. And I cut them back every winter so the snowdrops can be seen. And when the snowdrops are finished and there's just green foliage dying back, then the epimediums come up with lovely yellow flowers. One of the things we've got at Wisley, which is not commonly seen, are autumn flowering snowdrops called Galanthus regini olgai. It is very charming to walk through the rock garden and find a little plantation of autumn flowering snowdrops in November and December. In fact, we've got a very large collection of snowdrops at Wisley, and some of them are very valuable. They have to be kept in the locked case so that people can't pinch them. But um, I'm perfectly happy with the ordinary snowdrops growing in, in broad drifts. A garden without snowdrops would be a very poor thing in the winter. There's so little to see in the winter, particularly in small gardens. Not to have a drift of snowdrops would be a very sad loss. So I think that everyone would have a good reason to grow snowdrops. They don't grow that well in the pot, but they can be grown in the pot. And they do so much better than the other winter flowering plants. We're particularly talking about hellebores and aconites here, um, which are great plants, but they've not quite got the charm of a snowdrop. A snowdrop is something that lifts your heart. I love snowdrops because they're such an easy plant to grow. And they surprise you, you know, they disappear when everything else, everything else comes up. You have this rush of spring bulbs and flowers and the snowdrops just fade away. And then sort of New Year time, suddenly you see these fresh green shoots. And before you know it, January and February, you have these gorgeous, delicate little flowers. I'm not a galanthophile. I wouldn't pay a thousand pounds for a snowdrop bulb, but I do see how the endless kind of variations and subtle changes of colouring and petal marking and stuff, I can absolutely see how they would grab a plant fanatic's imagination. 
Snowdrops are just one of the many plants that have benefited from plant breeding. The art of combining different varieties to create something completely new. To find out more, I spoke to horticultural supremo Peter Moore. He's someone who's bred some of the most popular plants that you'll find in the garden centres over the last 30 years. Things like dwarf buddleias, fantastic choisy variety called Aztec pearl that's such a good plant, you see it everywhere. Thank you so much for talking to us, Peter. It's a real treat for me. Can you tell us how did you get into plant breeding and, and where did your sort of initial fascination come from? I started at um, Children's Ford Nursery in 1960. Um, there was a small nursery just outside Winchester. And at that point, I was responsible for the seed and that used to come in from botanical gardens from around the world. Um, so Harold Herrier, later in his life, used to go out collecting seed, born in Lancaster. Mm -hmm. And then on one day, some seed came in of a choicier, a choicier Amazonica from a Sammy Walker in Southwest United States. And after a couple of years, this particular choicier flowered, has very fine foliage, and mm. I crossed it with tonato. That's the normal choice that people see in their gardens, isn't it? it that is. we see really, really widespread, yeah. And obviously raised this first hybrid of the genus with its wonderful narrow leaves. And um, my colleague, Peter Dummer, came up with the name Aztec Pearl. And that's obviously a bestseller. It's a plant I've grown in many gardens that I've worked in over the years. It's a really lovely thing. Can you describe it for us? It has very narrow leaves, shiny, glossy and it's large flowers, pink in bud. Gets quite large, but pruned back hard. Anyway, when I started raised this one particular plant that gave you the bug to um, carry on producing more plants. And so I started on then um, trying to get a gold form, which after 10 years managed to raise something called gold fingers. It's very good, but obviously plant breeders have been trying to improve it. So I stayed at Hillier's only for 37 long years. <laughs> only 37, yep. <laughs> 37 long years. Anyway, I learned a tremendous amount at Hillier's. I was very grateful for what I learned there. I had no other commitments and so managed to move from where I was living in Southampton, working at Hillier's, to um, Longstock Park Nursery. My first public creation I developed after moving to Longstock was choice here white dazzler which is hardier and uh, better grower than aztec pearl and more suitable for smaller gardens but you said it took you 10 years to get the gold coloring into um choisy gold fingers can you tell us a bit about the processes behind your plant breeding well that was a hybrid obviously with aztec pearl was sun dance oh yeah all the seedlings each year all the seedlings came green and then after 10 years, one seedling out of a batch of like 100 seedlings was gold. Wow, so you've grown a 1,000 seedlings over 10 years to find that one with that colour break. Well, yes. And but how do you pick the plants that you're going to hybridise together? I mean, it was just luck up to a point. I was looking after the seeds that came in from around the world and one particular plant was Arizonica. Then after that, I managed to obtain some other species, one called Morris, and Demosa from a collector out in the US managed to bring some plants over. So it's just knowing people and um, being in the right place at the right time, basically, isn't it? And wanting to do it. I wouldn't like to say it's difficult, it's just wanting to do it. Yeah. And so do you actually take the pollen from one particular plant and, and sort of transfer it to another, or do you let the bees do the work, or what's the, what's the process? 
no, I deliberately do all my hybrids. I've only got a small garden, relatively small, and so I haven't got the space like a nurseryman can put mm. uh, loads of different plants into a pathing tunnel and let the bees do it and then collect the seed. As I've only got a small glass house, I do all the individual deliberately yeah. and cross them. But how do you kind of guarantee that the new plant's going to be stable and that it's something that, you know, consumers are going to want? Well, you can only just try it in your garden for a number of years and hopefully uh, I'm quite, it's quite chilly out here. It's, it's only in North Hampshire, but um, it's quite cold. Mm. Uh, so I test the things in my uh, garden. I've got a sort of display bed and uh, just leave them there until um, such time as I can you know, get somebody interested in it. I, yeah. mean, I mean, quite a small percentage of what I've raised over the year is in garden centres across the UK. With the choisiers, have you got any sort of cultivation tips? Because, you know, Aztec Pearl and Apple Blossom, they're all real, and White Dazzler, they're all your plants and they're all real kind of garden centre classics that people listening will know and love. Can you give us a few sort of cultivation tips to really get the best out of them? Well, I think, that, I mean, certainly White Dazzler, that will grow in any soil, sun or shade. And basically, I just run a, put the shears over them when they finish flowering. Simple. Nothing very much. And uh, obviously just give them some fertiliser or compost in the spring just to keep them happy. If you could hybridise any plant, if you could breed any plant, what would it be? On sort of budweries, there's no pure yellow variety, not hardy. There's a tender budweer called Louisiana Margaret Pike, which is in fact a hybrid of um, Asiatica and Mavrigas insis. If you could get a hardy budweer mm. uh, with a ye long yellow spike, because this particular one called Margaret Pike, the flower is about 20 centimetres long. But on the golden varieties in the garden is the Wariana hybrids, which is um, it's just a ball. Wariana mm. so sun gold is the best of the golden budweers, the hardy golden budweers, but it's not a true... Um, spike. If you could get a wonderful spike white budweer white perfusion of gold, yeah. that would be fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to us, Peter. From a pioneering modern day gardener to one that changed growing for the Victorians, William Robinson is known for ushering in a new style of gardening known as the wild garden. I spoke to our Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, Fiona Davison, to learn more. So Fiona, can you set the context for us? Who was William Robinson and when was he alive? Well, he's a really influential gardener and garden writer. It's his writings that really ripple outwards. He was born in 1838, he's Irish, and he wrote through the 19th century. And what he's really known for is this rejection of the high Victorian mm. bedding out system, the very formal, non-hardy plants yes, it was lots out. Of, it was lots of carpet bedding and as, yeah. as much money and coal-heated <laughs> greenhouses as you could throw at it, wasn't very it? Very non-green, Yes, absolutely. You know, yep. kind of, it's carbon impact. <laughs> Pretty high, you need a great big greenhouse yeah. and hothouse these plants. But he wanted to promote what he saw was a more natural style of planting where you planted hardy herbaceous mm. plants that could look after themselves. You'd plant them and they could cope in our climate. Didn't yeah. mean necessarily of British origin, not just wild plants, no. as we would say, but you know, it could be from all over the world, but they needed to take care mm. of themselves. Well, lots of plants were coming in at that point, Absolutely. weren't they? Lots of plants were arriving in Britain. 
Yeah, and he was hugely influential. So he came over and he his first job in this country was he worked at what was the Botanical Gardens in Regent's Park. Which, not I didn't there, know they were. yes, yeah. yeah, very influential one. And he looked after the wildflower bit of it, and that's what switched him on mm. to this notion of plants that can take care of themselves, right plant, right place. Yeah, but sounds, then he sounds quite quite like a pioneer, really. Yeah, He's ahead it's quite of his modern, time. you know. Mm. A lot of the things we just like are very familiar with yes. in terms of how we got planting in drifts, for example. Oh, okay, that he was a very mm. big promoter of that. And he wrote a book called The Wild Garden, published in 1870, which set out this. He hated standard roses and mm. clipped and topiary and statue, every, all these kind of what he felt were fussy and finickety and artificial gardening. And it really caught on it because mm. it chimed with the arts and crafts movement. Of course. So that was a point where the Industrial Revolution had really kind of reached its zenith, yes. wasn't it? And, and people were rejecting yeah. that and wanting to go back to a kind of... There was also kind of romantic, mm. old Englandy yeah. kind of notion and uh, cottage garden plants and yes. what was deemed to be more natural. And he employed Gertrude Jekyll to write on a magazine that he started called The Garden, which is mm-hmm. not a bad name for a magazine, <laughs> but somebody else copied that. And Jekyll wrote lots of... Articles for him, it was her kind of first start. The other thing that slightly more quirkily he was very interested in was cremation. Um, I did not know that. Yes, and he was a big supporter of cremation and crematoria gardens. Okay. So, you know, the the idea of a church plot where you were Mm. buried and then you would have quite pristine lawns around your graves and little posies. No, he wanted people to be cremated, felt it was more kind of better for these overcrowded Graveyards and yeah. I suppose that would have been a new thing as well. Was then, a new, it was very, mm. very controversial. In, in but Britain. In Britain. And then you would have a crematorium garden, which would be a woodland, mm. it would be wild, contemplative space and uh, much more natural. It's all kind of a part of a piece. And he designed the Golders Green Crematorium Garden. Oh, I see. If you're a bit odd like me and you quite like wandering <laughs> around um, churchyards and gardens and graves, it's a good one to go yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> must have been, again, it must have been a real change from the kind of hothouse chrysanthemums on a, yeah. on a very tidily mown plot. Absolutely. Then the high 19th century garden, you would would want bare soil around mm. the plant so you could see the form of the plant. And he was yeah. absolutely averse to bare soil. Yeah. He wanted these drifts. With good reason. Yes, yes. Mm. And so a lot of what he laid down, actually now, although he wasn't writing it from this point of view, mm. is actually now something where we can say it's more supportive of biodiversity, it's better for wildlife, and it doesn't have this high carbon footprint yes. of the bedding out system. Yes. So yeah. unwittingly... <laughs> he was an eco pioneer. He was an eco pioneer. Um, and has, has he influenced any other well-known garden designers? Well, pr- yeah, I would say you know pretty much every mm. garden designer now. You, some of these things you just take for red. This idea that you plant in groups and you you have the right plant, right place. Yes. Notion. Yeah. It's almost so core. We don't mm. think that anybody invented it. It's kind yes. of one of those things you just think everybody always knew. Yeah, but of course it had to come from somewhere. Yep, and it came from Mr Robinson. We're really lucky in the library in that we have some really great material relating to him, so we've got we can tell his story really well. So he he made a lot of money 
with mm. these books. They went into many, many editions, which we have all of them. And his garden magazine was very popular. So he was able to buy a large estate called Grave Tie, uh, where he put his plans into action. It's a thousand acre estate. Wow. Um, and he was also able to employ an artist called Henry Moon to draw and paint plants at Grave Tie and other plants he was interested in for the garden magazine. We're really lucky. We have the diary that he wrote about Grave Tie, wow. which he later published. Yeah. We've got the original, handwritten. We've got Henry Moon's drawings and paintings, which were relatively two or three years ago donated to us by family that purchased Grave Tie and turned it into a hotel. And we've also got letters that he wrote to Gertrude Jekyll. Oh, she's really lovely. Yeah. She's asking him for gardening tips, which is really nice. Because she's, she's kind of considered like the doyenne of British garden design, yeah, really, yeah. isn't she, from the late 19th and early 20th? Really influential mm. still. Centuries. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But there's a very tight connection mm. with William Robinson and, and her, which are in these letters. So the great news is we're digitising all these things. Oh, fantastic. And we'll be able to put them online later this year for Brilliant. everybody to look at. Because at the moment it feels like he's a bit of an unsung hero, so hopefully this work will allow his genius to be shared a bit more widely. Yeah, we really hope so. Well, William Robinson, is, he is genuinely so fascinating. Just such a trailblazer in terms of going completely against the prevailing currents of fashion and the way that people saw plants. And that brings me to the end of this week's show. If you're out pottering this week, don't forget to prune your buddleia. So cut them fairly hard back. You'll be amazed at how much they regrow and how much better they look because if you leave buddleias to just grow and grow, they can get quite twiggy and you have the old remains of flower heads. Give them a good hack. You can even cut them back to sort of knee height and they will really regenerate quite quickly. For more on anything in today's episode, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or check out our show notes. Thanks for listening and happy gardening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice 
monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.